0: Uh, Today, I am bringing on Austin Walters from Springtide Ventures. Uh, Before we get started with our just broader discussion about healthcare and about how healthcare costs um, are so high and what drives that, um, can you please tell us a little about yourself and what you're doing at Springtide?
1: Yeah, happy to, Nick. And thanks for having me on today. Uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur by background. I was an early employee or founder at a few ventures prior to Springtide, uh, including uh, two media companies, Wim and Friendemic, and two health tech companies, Ekinos and Etolytics. Ekinos and Edalytics are in the ultrasound and precision genome editing analytics spaces, respectively. I founded Springtide in 2018 with the purpose of funding early stage healthcare innovation Uh, prior to or alongside of uh, my entrepreneurial activity. I uh, was a strategy consultant for some years at a firm in Boston called InnoSight. InnoCite was co-founded by a Harvard Business School professor named Clay Christensen, who uh, was well known for developing the theory of disruptive innovation and um, while working at, at Inosight, I had a number of large health healthcare clients. So had experience in the industry from that perspective. And um, our purpose at Springtide is to fund disruptive innovation in healthcare.
0: And speaking of disruptive innovation in healthcare, what is why has healthcare been so resistant to disruptions that would make it more efficient and lower cost?
1: I think there are a lot of reasons. Um, I think many of them could be bucketed under the category of uh, skewed incentives um, due to how healthcare is paid for. Uh, Clay wrote a book uh, co-authored with Jerome Grossman called The Innovator's Prescription uh, some time ago. and in the book there's a section on healthcare payment and i i think they make the comment that um the way center for medicaid medicare services cms uh develops reimbursement codes for healthcare procedures and i might even have a copy of the of the book here yep so this is from 2017 it's the last copy i had but you can see <laughs> Even then, it's a pretty thick book, and every year the book grows in thickness, um, and it's because, you know, just to take a random page, you can see, right, there are codes associated with every single procedure known to man in healthcare, and uh, those codes uh, determine what CMS will reimburse you uh, for Medicare, Medicaid patients that that are covered under one of those two government, um, insurance programs, all of the, um, large healthcare insurance companies, uh, benchmark to the same CPT codes. So they, they don't offer the same exact reimbursement and reimbursement can vary from state to state and provider to provider and they're negotiated, but they're benchmarked. Okay. So within a narrow band, um, the the CMS is basically a market maker for how healthcare is is paid for, right? It underwrites almost all healthcare. Um, that um, system of payment is known for as fee for service. And um, Clay and uh, and and Dr. Grossman make the point that it's the this is the only part of the U.S. economy that functions like the Soviet Union, where uh, the Soviet Union economy uh, depended on brilliant economists uh, developing very complex algorithms for what the price of everything should be in a given year. Right? 1972, here's what a ball bearing is gonna, is, is gonna be priced at from Moscow to Mongolia, right? And and of course, um, no matter how brilliant the economists were, you um, the real world is far more dynamic, uh, and you have um, so many more variables in the real world that might determine demand uh, for something in, in in a given place in a given time. And so, you know, the market the market is this dynamic thing that balances between supply and demand. Because of how healthcare is paid for. Uh, you have basically uh, an, an entity saying, here's here's what the price of this will be, the price of this will be, and so on. So it's not a true market in that sense. And uh, there are other reasons, Nick, but I'll, I'll stop for a breath there. Because I think many, many of the reasons and just the nature of healthcare as a regulated industry, we've talked about how uh, its pricing is regulated. Uh, there are other aspects that have, that, are, that are also highly regulated. Um, yeah,
0: the most um, indicting regulation I've seen in um, the Obamacare legislation about this was the fact that health insurers, quote me if I let me know if I'm wrong on this, but I think it's that they have to spend a minimum of 85% of their top line in and, and payouts. Yes. And so if you are a health insurance company, you want to grow your profits, but you're a fixed gross margin, the only way that you can. Grow is by um, increasing your top line, and the only way you can create a top line is, in, is especially if the population not growing that fast in the United States, is by uh, increasing your your prices. Even if you even if you pay out more at the bottom end, you can grow your. Per, it's fifteen percent of a billion dollars is more than fifteen percent of eight hundred million dollars. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest driver of, like, the post-2010 health insurance premium increases. But what are some other primary drivers of why health care costs are so high? Like, in other countries, even with, I'd say, arguably even more inefficient socialized medicine, they don't have their health care as more than 10% of GDP. So why is it close to, say, 18 to 20% in the United States?
1: Yeah, again, very very complex problem. I've, I I believe the fastest growing branch of economics is healthcare economics, and and has been for you know a decade or so. So lots of you know people trying to wrap their heads around you know why is this happening and how can we fix it. More importantly, I'll point I'll point to two um, areas of of causality that I think are are, are very relevant. One is just the the demographics of the united states and the history of the united states uh being one and um and then the other being just uh the politics and the policy again the regulation of how healthcare is paid for so i'm going to come back to that with respect to healthcare innovation actually and um uh you know talk about that so um the demographics of the United States, so you, you, you'll see comparisons between other post-industrial societies like Australia, South Africa, Europe, you know, Western European countries, and the United States, Canada. And, 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 and often that we're we're benchmarked um to other post-industrial societies in terms of health outcomes and you know um healthcare spend right uh most of those healthcare systems are um and I'm, I'm going to come back to this point in a moment, but they're single payer for the most part. Um, some exceptions to that, but the, uh, uh, we are not exactly a single payer system, even though CMS sort of sets sets prices. Um, um, we're, we're not a single payer system, but our demographics are very different. Um, the United States is basically a reflection of global demographics to some extent. We have, uh, it's, it's a country that takes in people from all over the world. And, and it's a very, as a result, very diverse society. Um, so just the statistics of that and um, the inequality that exists in the United States, the different patterns of settlement, the fact that it's still <laughs> a, quite a rural country, um, actually, and that healthcare access is a real issue um, I think much of this is geopolitical and historical and demographic in nature. Um, so we can't forget that, right. That that we don't have a society that's homogenous in the same way that Sweden <laughs> is homogenous, right. It, it, and now, if you, if you carve out parts of the United States, like Utah, for example, it looks pretty similar to say the Nordics um, in terms of healthcare spend and outcomes. Um, so it, again, much of it has to do with, um, I think, uh, the diversity of our society, um, which I don't think any of us would want to, to, to give up. Um, the other part though, is, um, um, more policy related and the nature of the U S economy. Um, and there are trade-offs with this, right? So broadly characterizing the U S healthcare system is still being somewhat market-based, even though we have this kind of state underwritten, payment system versus socialized medicine, um, systems like most European countries where you have a single payer, uh, the benefit of the single payer systems is the collective bargaining power that they can bring to bear in determining how, what they're going to pay for, say, Ozempic, right? Uh, a new weight loss drug or uh, insulin for, 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 uh, as, as a, a diabetes therapeutic and so on and so forth. Uh, prices that are paid for drugs and devices and procedures in single-payer socialized medicine systems are orders of magnitude less than what we pay for in the United States. It has to do with the collective bargaining power. It also has to do with the, you know, the fact that in the United States, we have chosen to um, uh, support and uh, reward innovation. Uh, it's not always inexpensive to do that. Uh, we have a, an economy that um, is incredibly productive of innovation, which is great, creates jobs, uh, particularly in innovation um, um, uh call it uh, hotbeds, of uh, uh, innovation sub-economies within the United States, so places like Boston, the Bay Area, right, and many other uh, regions of the United States, um, there, there's really no, no other place in the world quite like the United States. Now, um, the trade-off is, though, that um, we are effectively subsidizing healthcare innovation for the rest of the world by choosing to, you know, by, by paying, uh, the makers of the, of of these new weight loss medications, um, and the way that, that, that that we are paying them. And, um, a lot of that goes back to these reimbursement codes. Um, and, um, much of this is, is politicized actually. It's not, it's not objective. It's, it's, um, um, a, a fair bit of it is the result of lobbying and um, influence and, and, and pork uh, legislation and so on and so forth. So um, in politics, as you as you know, there, there's a ratchet effect, right? It's much easier to kind of move things in one direction, uh, which is the direction of benefit <laughs> and much more difficult to kind of reverse that. Um, so uh, I think because of our system, uh, we're, we produce an incredible amount of innovation. The globe benefits from this in very significant ways. Um, we don't face the rationing of healthcare in the same way that the single payer systems do, right? That's part of the trade off. Uh, but our, uh, as a percentage of GDP, we're close to eighteen to twenty. So, I think those are some of the principal reasons, at least that you know, uh, are top of mind for me as a non-healthcare economist.
0: Okay, and how much does the AMA cap effectively on medical students? affect the cost of healthcare because I know that doctors in Europe get paid a lot less and a lot of people I know from doc, fam, parents or doctors left to work in finance for that very reason who grew up places like France and Switzerland and Italy and Spain and places like that um, and why does the AMA make it so impossible for young people to get into medical school is it really just so that the doctors can have their relatively high pay that they're accustomed to compared to other professions or um, and how much of that, if that is the case, drives healthcare costs higher. I, I think that would
1: certainly be a contributor, um, you know, to the extent that, 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 that's happening. I, it's um, yeah. I think a shortage of uh, medical schools, uh, at least by my understanding, um, I, I know for sure. And from my vantage point as a venture capital investor, You hear from every provider organization about workforce shortages, not just doctors, but even including less credentialed providers such as nurses, um, uh, shortages across the board. Um, So I heard anecdotally um, in in many um, cases during COVID, nurse and especially contingent labor, so travel nurses, um, were, were starting to be paid more than some doctors. Right, not not neurosurgeons, but family physicians, for instance, um, uh, because there's such demand um, and 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 such such a shortage. So again, uh, that I think some of that's market forces, and I think Nick, your your question around you know uh, let let's think about the supply side is really important. You know, how how can we bring more people in medicine? This is exacerbated. Um, um, you know, I've heard more, frankly um, let, let's call it kind of, um, you know, stick their sticks and their carrots, right. And, and if, if medical school, uh, you know, the difficulty of getting into medical school, maybe that's not a stick or a carrot, but like a gate or something. But, but once people are a doctor say, um, uh, many doctors are, are burning out. Um, you know, they left the profession during the pandemic, um, and, and other providers are, are burning out. And, um, Plus, you have the boomer generation, uh, the the so-called silver wave that are that are reaching retirement age now. So as that very large demographic begins to retire, that's going to exacerbate the workforce shortage problem. So we hear that from from all provider organizations that this is a big deal and therefore they really need to invest in uh, workforce automation wherever possible. The difficulty, of course, is you can't really automate a doctor fully um, the, these days, but certain pieces of legislation like meaningful use around electronic health records that said basically mandated, right, and this was, um, I don't think necessarily was part of Obamacare, but right around the same era um, uh, that, that, you know, you, you provide organization must use electronic health records and here are the benefits would be largely the, the clinician, the individual clinicians by and large intensely dislike their experiences working with the dominant electronic health record products, which were written um, on software stacks that are 50 to 70 years old. Um, so the number of clicks required to kind of do your basic <laughs> Work is is again an order of magnitude or two higher than what we're used to with modern software products. Um, we see opportunities for AI to kind of fix this, uh, as well as fire data interchangeability standards, et cetera. We have some investments in this space, but um, those are some of the things, Nick, that I I see contributing to the lack of supply of of uh, provider labor. And I, I think your you know your point around kind of. Uh, medical schools and the profession controlling that supply. Um, I don't know as much about that, but I think it's an interesting, uh, an interesting question.
0: And then with the rest of the world, apparently subsidizing the U S and maybe I think Switzerland or and other countries, a net positive creator in um, healthcare innovation. Is there a, like a policy solution to get these countries to pay like their fair share, the single payer ones in innovation? Otherwise the US went single payer would we just basically have an effective cap on health spans because nobody would bother to put in the financing to develop any new sort of innovations in medicine
1: so that you know admittedly this is another area that i i think it's a fascinating question i don't know enough about it one one would assume so clearly in the US there's um a, a wonderful chemistry that's productive of innovation of all kinds. Um not just in healthcare but um you know across the board the number of startups that are founded the number of unicorns that kind of come into existence there there's there's no economy quite like it. And um the and so a part of it is the generous uh, subsidization, if you will, uh, due to how healthcare is paid for and um, new drugs and devices. the in, The incentives to develop them are, are very rich. Um, it's true that even European, um, for example, uh, device and drug makers um, often really their their end game is to get into the U.S. market, right? <laughs> they they want that that FDA uh, approval or clearance um, to 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 really. Um, uh make the kind of money that they hope to make. So um I think that said um if you were to look at it on a per capita basis um you know what what is the actual statistical difference between uh, you know single payer system like you know a sophisticated um economy like like the UK, Switzerland, Germany, France, if you if you if you if you took a look at those countries as on a per capita basis, what what's the innovation impact, if you will, of of, of a single payer approach to the, to the U.S. system? And I've I've uh, I haven't done um, enough research on this to know, uh, but uh, what one would assume the U.S. would still be ahead because of the way we subsidize this. But I've heard people claim that that's not the case. I just came back from Switzerland last week um, and um, met with a couple of pharma companies there. Of course, pharma is one of Switzerland's um, key economies um, and uh, you have um, a a number of of great, great companies, uh, large pharma companies out of Switzerland. I met with um, a a biopharma company in Lausanne uh, in a new, uh, life sciences development park called Biopole um, in Lausanne. And I believe the canton um, has has invested something like half a billion dollars in developing this Biopole, uh, w- which is meant to be, um, I don't know, like the Research Triangle Park um, of, of, of Raleigh-Durham, you know, a triangle in North Carolina for Switzerland. And, and it's an impressive, um, impressive place. And I uh, was impressed with what I saw, so I think it's a good question. I don't, I don't know the answer definitively as, as to how how things would look different. You know, would would the people that are encourageable entrepreneurs these days kind of lessen their activity if you know the if, if, if you know taxes were higher and, and and it was kind of somewhat less monetarily rewarding for them to to per, pursue innovation? I, I'm certain those incentives would have an effect. Um, you know, the magnitude of that hard, hard to say for me.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah. The next question I have in terms of drivers, of the healthcare cost spread is how much does the fact that the U S has a materially higher obesity rate than most other developed nations with the exceptions being, I think, Canada, the UK and some of the Gulf States and Mexico have similar levels of obesity, the U S but the, how's that impacted? Like, the cost spread. Cause I think that's a big driver of the U S having a much larger population, but also a much larger obese population.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. Th- I, I think, I think that's a, a good point. I do know that uh, the, the big chronic conditions, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, um, uh, COPD um, drive stress, uh, and, and complications related there too, uh, drive something like 70, 80% of healthcare spend. So uh, so um, certainly lifestyle factors are, play a, an enormous role in each of those chronic conditions. Um, with diabetes, you have uh, type one, which is congenital and type two, which is uh, late late onset and often um, avoidable or reversible uh, depending on lifestyle choices. Um, I think the statistics around type two diabetes, uh, are about 30 Americans have been diagnosed with type two diabetes, but I think that the estimates are upwards of 60 million, um, might have, um, um, diabetes or pre-diabetes. So I think it's another, another 30 million on top of that might have pre-diabetes. Um, so the, again, the cost burden, the U S has what over just over 300 million, uh, people. So 340 to be exact. Yeah. 40. So that's a significant part of the population that, um, that's a, that is a risk for that. And, uh, no, I think that's a major driver. And if, and I think an interesting comparison, uh, like would, if would America
0: be- had the same overall health as like Colorado, which I think is the only state whose obesity rate is under 40%. Or under thirty percent. Um, if America overall was as healthy as Colorado, would we have a similar percentage of healthcare spend to GDP as European countries do?
1: Well, I don't think that health is the only driver, as we've discussed, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I think it's multifactorial. The but I think that certainly that would help lower costs for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah and then um, the other component is this this is a similar field such as education and just government bureaucracies in general what and which are and other industries that are heavily regulated or have quasi like governmental controls on them they tend to have the most inefficient labor forces compared to other industries that like such as Software and technology, which have relatively lean workforces, is the healthcare industry and education industry and a lot of these other semi protected industries essentially the role in society is to be job, middle class job providers. Like if you look at, say, like a Rust Belt city, like Syracuse, New York, or a Columbus, Ohio, or something like that, where a lot of their factories were gone. Those jobs essentially, like you look at the biggest employers in all of these Rust Belt cities now, they're health care facilities, such as hospitals and distribution centers and things related to providing care. So is healthcare care essentially, the reason why it's inefficient is it's intentionally so to be a jobs program for people who otherwise wouldn't have a demand for it in, in a more free market economy? Or am I a little bit conspiratorial here?
1: I think I think that's a a a really um, interesting question. I mean, I um, what what and and yes, clearly these these uh, provider systems are the largest employers in um, many parts of the U.S. And um, so, a couple comments, right? One, uh, the uh, there's a book I I I read called uh, the the uh, America's Bitter Pill. I think it is, um, written by Stephen Brill, who's a, a journalism professor at Yale and, and wrote a book on healthcare costs. And one of the things that um, I recall from that book is he, he looked at um, the status of most hospital systems or health systems as being nonprofits. So these are nonprofit organizations, mostly, which can't distribute profits to shareholders, right? So where do those profits go? They go into the next, the the latest and greatest MRI machine, or CAT scanner, or um, you know, re- remote surgical tool, or or um, whatever, right? It, it, or or infrastructure, new campuses, new shiny new buildings, right? So, so they um, have you been to Cleveland, Ohio? No, I've never been to Ohio at all. So. I went to Cleveland a, a couple of years ago when, when I was with Echinos and spent some time there. And, and what struck me about Cleveland is that is just how uh, multi tentacled cl- the Cleveland Clinic is in Cleveland. Physically, its physical footprint reaches across the entire city and most of the suburbs. It, it's it is enormous. It's enormous. And, uh, and, and it's also a destination health system, right? They're known for, I think, mostly cardiovascular care. Certainly Mayo Clinic is. And so people come in from all over the United States and all over the world <laughs> to Cleveland. It's a big part of their economy. Uh, but you know, a lot of the system's nonprofit status ensures that they're plowing their profits back into infrastructure. And, and that increases their overhead costs, which they have to pay for by, uh, you know, funneling people to high reimbursement procedures, right? Not all procedures are created equally. Some are a lot more profitable perf- performed than others. Th- these are known as profit centers within health systems. And then you have kind of loss makers within health systems. Th- though Economically, those don't necessarily match, by the way, to the best healthcare choices from a purely clinical standpoint. So for example, implanting catheters in people is very profitable procedure so i have seen estimates from healthcare economists suggesting that there are about 30% more catheters placed into patients than should be from than than than, than a purely clinical uh uh and, th- and this seems to be driven by the economics of of cath labs this is a profit center for most health systems so there's a, a mutually reinforcing process there of, of nonprofit status leads to reinvestment, leads to higher overhead, leads to um, a need to you know uh, charge more to cover costs, right? And then pair that with the silver wave of a massive number of Americans that are getting older and who's, I think, again, 80% of healthcare costs occur at the end of life or the very beginning of life. Neonatal intensive care units, And end of life care, because that's when people are really sick, (laughs) right? Really sick, like in an inpatient way. Um, And so uh, that's another, that points to another set of factors, right? I'm worried about what's going to happen to these systems uh, and hospitals uh, when the silver wave passes. Um that that I think is 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 something that we as a society need to plan plan carefully for. Um,
0: yeah, speaking of the Silver Way, one aspect of healthcare venture capital that I've been paying attention to from an outsider's perspective is the longevity. Uh, do you guys do any investments in the longevity space and like, what developments are going on there that's going to make say like a 150 year lifespan more viable? 20,
1: 30 years from now. Yeah. Um, we we haven't done much with with longevity per se. Um, I think everything we invest in elevates human health, but frankly, we're more focused on democratizing access to quality care that already exists and scaling that globally than we are trying to, you know, extend the lifespan of Elon Musk. If that makes sense. Yeah. Different investment philosophies and interests, uh, but we're very much on the side of disruption and global democratization, um, which we think are actually the those lead to the largest businesses um, known to man. But uh, we also just feel better about it ethically. I, you know, I'm glad that you you brought this up, though, because um, I think one of the uh, another uh, very significant cause and now we're starting to get to more uh, remote causes or ultimate causes right if you will we've talked about pro- proximate causes and more remote causes this is one of the more remote causes well why does the us care so much about funding healthcare innovation right well, maybe it's to create jobs here's another reason we fight against death culturally and uh reasons for that are complex. It has to do with just religion, history,
0: um, uh, culture. Uh, Have you ever read the denial of death by Ernst Becker? No, it goes into a lot of the psychology behind this very thing. I think you should check it out. I'd love to read
1: it. Um, you, you know, Atul Gawande, a, a, a popular physician author and thinker wrote a book called when breath becomes air. Um, Kind of dealing with this issue he you know comes, uh, I think his family history is uh, uh from India um and and there and in many other parts of the world there's a different relationship to death uh culturally there's more more of an acceptance of of death and and again I th- I see trade-offs here right so our Western fight against death has resulted in tremendous, technological advancement right and 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 the 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 extension of human life already it's a remarkable achievements but at a certain point (laughs) you you have this end of life situations right where somebody's on life support i mean they're just we're just bleeding them dry financially and if not them then society because it's taxpayer dollars right and the quality of life is gone like but there's just still this fight and um you have situations like that that just aren't probably the best that that one could imagine for that person or their family or society. Um, and uh, so, you know, th- these are th- these are complex issues, and I think as we try and grapple with uh, healthcare spend and the silver wave, um, these are these are some issues that we're going to have to work through as a society, and I suspect that we're going to kind of shift our values are going to shift. We're going to continue learning from folks like Atul Gawande um, uh, to, you know, ha- uh, with respect to our spiritual relationship with death, right? Um, and how that, how that feeds into uh, how we structure our society, because policy is always just a reflection of values, right?